How shall a young man cleanse his way? By taking heed thereto according to thy word. Thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against thee. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. Jesus prayed to the Father, sanctify them in truth. Thy word is truth. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we get started, let's have a a word of prayer. Make sure we're in fellowship. We'll be have a few moments of silent prayer first to make sure we're all in fellowship, ready to study the word. Then I'll open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, again, we're so very grateful that we can be here this evening. We're grateful that we have your word. We're grateful for all that you have revealed to us, and we're above all grateful for the fact that we live in this age, the church age, where the uh, salvation has been accomplished, finished for us on the cross, and we have a unique spiritual life that provided by uh, you through God the Holy Spirit who strengthens and enables us uh, rich spiritual life that is so very, very different from that which has gone before. Father, as we continue our study on Romans 7, on sanctification, on law versus grace, we pray that you'd help us to understand these things, that they would not simply be a matter of of uh, academic understanding and uh, study, but would also truly make us understand how how distinctive our spiritual life is, how rich it is, and how uh, wonderful it is in contrast to all that has preceded it and all that will come after it. And we pray that you would challenge us. Also, Father, we pray for those in the congregation who are dealing with some serious health problems, specifically thinking about Tom Flint uh, in the hospital, and just pray for him, for his family. Pray for comfort for them, comfort from your word and that they might be a solid witness for you. And we pray for wisdom, skill on the part of the doctors. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. We are going to start in Galatians this evening. We're still studying Romans 7. I want to uh, just contextualize things for you just a little bit, that in Romans 6, 7, and 8, we have... The greatest passage, I think, in the Old Te- uh, in the New Testament, dealing with the spiritual life. Romans six focuses on the fact that we are dead to sin. This was a chart I put together a couple of weeks ago. Romans seven focuses on the fact that we are dead to the law. There's some important things brought out here. I think that we don't always grab their significance. They, they don't shake us quite as much for a number of reasons. Number one, we've been taught many times about the significance of the spiritual life in the church age. I've emphasized this again and again. And so in many ways and in many aspects, this isn't new truth. But for Jews and Christians in the early church, this was just phenomenal. This, this was revolutionary in a, in a tremendous way. It, it was a radical shift, and it was, it's, it was a major paradigm shift so that they had to think about their relationship with God and their ongoing walk with God in a way that they had never thought about it before. And the whole dynamic of the empowerment of the Holy Spirit, and I use that word because I'm including both the uh, indwelling aspects as well as the filling aspects of God the Holy Spirit. 
were something that that they truly wrestled with, especially those that came from a Jewish background, because they had been drilled to honor and respect the law so much. In fact, it puts us to shame because as Gentile members of the church, we don't seem to have the same level of respect just for the word of God, just for the written word of God in terms of knowledge, in terms of memory, in terms of our thoroughgoing understanding of what God has revealed to us. We don't emphasize memory like the Jewish community has over the centuries where uh, especially in many, many, many uh, circles, uh, a young man was expected to have the entire Pentateuch memorized before he before he had bar mitzvah. He, he memorized the entire Torah. If I just ask some Christians to memorize ten verses in a year, they scream as if I'm a legalist. That, and that wasn't done out of legalism, which is a common misconception you hear from Christians who really want to avoid responsibility in the Christian life. Legalism is thinking that what God commands us to do uh, somehow gets approval from God. That's the basis for our blessing. That's that's legalism. Uh, the difference between legalism and grace in the life of an individual in relation to divine commandments often won't look any different. The difference is the motivation and how it is appreciated by the individual. One person prays, memorizes scripture, goes to Bible class, and they think that they're getting brownie points with God for doing all of that. The other Christian knows God already gave them everything, and they need to learn about it, and they're there as a response. But in terms of watching what they do on a day-to-day basis, they're doing pretty much the same thing. That's the difference between legalism and grace, and we're going to get into that a little bit later in one of the passages we're studying here. It's legalism. It's not just a matter of obeying the law. Otherwise, God would be a legalist because God expected the Jews in the Old Testament to obey the law. That wasn't legalism. In the same way that God expects believers in the church age to obey all of the uh, commandments and prohibitions that are in the New Testament. It is an expectation of conforming our thinking to his thinking, uh, Romans 12.2. But this has been a problem ever since the beginning of the church is to understand the relationship, first of all, to, of the believer to sin, and secondly, the believer to the law. And in relation to sin, it's because we have problems with Historically, and I use we as a broad term for Christians in general, have had problems understanding how someone, after they claim to become a Christian, after conversion, continues to sin in certain ways, like just like an unbeliever, and continues to live like an unbeliever and act like an unbeliever in many ways. And usually these are defined in overt terms rather than mental attitude sins because the mental attitude sins, you can carry those on and nobody sees them. So there's a lot of covert activity going on there that you think you're fooling somebody, but spiritually it, it doesn't fool anybody. We have to understand that relationship to sin, that there's forgiveness. Sin was paid for on the cross, but we have to think now in the sense that we are dead to sin. Nobody, as I pointed out, prior to the cross, no one prior to the day of Pentecost could think of themselves as being dead to sin. Couldn't do it. That's based on the baptism by the Holy Spirit 
And because that didn't take place until the day of Pentecost, that identification with Christ in his death, burial, and resurrection, uh, sometimes called retroactive positional truth, because of that action, we're dead to sin. And that's a hard concept to to uh, get our, our mental fingers around. We're also dead to the law. And we have to understand what that means. So I put up this little chart, the left-hand side, talking about uh, Romans 6, the top part, before we're saved, we're alive to sin, a slave to sin, and we're free. That means there's we don't have any righteousness. We're free in regard to righteousness. There's no righteousness in our life. The unbeliever, the fallen condemned, in Adam individual, unbeliever, I think I misspoke him in, the, the unbeliever in Adam can't perform anything that is perfectly righteous. There's no positive righteousness in his life. He can do good things. Jesus is the one who said to his disciples, you being evil, fallen, condemned, corrupt, know how to give good gifts to your children. You can do good things. You can do wonderful things. You can do altruistic things. They just are not the basis for your standing before God. So the top three are our situation before we're saved. After we're saved, we're not alive to sin anymore. We're dead to sin. We are justified from sin. Romans 6, 7 translates it in most English translation, freed from sin, but it is justified. It's the same Greek word, dikaiao, the same Greek verb used all through those justification passages. We are freed from sin, eleutereo, Freed from sin in Romans 6.19, and now we are to consider ourselves a slave to God and a slave to righteousness. That's all Romans 6. Then Paul advances what he's explaining to help us understand that we're now dead to the law. This uh, In Romans 6.14, if you look there, Romans 6.14 begins this, this statement of, of Paul's that we are no longer under the law, but we're under grace. There's been a shift. The rest of that chapter deals with this idea of being dead, uh, dead, uh, dead to sin and a slave to God and to righteousness. Now he comes back to what it means that we're not, no longer under the law in Romans chapter 7. We're dead to the law. It means that we're free from the law just as we were free from sin. Uh, the tie to the law is abolished so that we can live now in the newness of the Spirit. Now, I want you to look at this verse very carefully because this becomes a foundation for some of the things we're going to cover tonight and something that I hope I will be able to shed some light on our thinking because this goes to a passage and a metaphor that I think has been, been very confusing for a lot of people. It is terribly misused both culturally, because the verbiage is drawn from the Scripture and you hear cultural idioms related to it. It's misused in those idioms, and it's misused by by a lot of Christians. In fact, I'm not sure if I've ever heard it taught correctly, and I haven't really heard it taught that much. So, uh, And that comes out of the verbiage that we find in Romans uh, 7, 7, 6. But now we have been delivered from the law, having died... That means we're separated completely to what we were held by, that is the sin nature, so that we should serve. See, the purpose for that severing of the authority of the sin nature is for the purpose of serving 
That's the Greek verb diakoneo, also translated ministry. Uh, it, it's the, related to the noun for deacon, and it has that idea of serving God. Hold on to that. That is really important. We've, we're saved for the purpose of serving or ministering in or by the newness of the Spirit. And that is contrasted to the oldness of the letter. Spirit versus letter. Now, what does that mean? Those of you who've been around, read your Bible more than once or twice, know that there's a development of that idea in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, and we're going to go there. But I just want to point out that this passage in context is not condemning the concept of the letter of the law. Now, when you get over in 2 Corinthians 3, that's how most people want to interpret that. But I just want to nail this down for you because there's only three or four passages that even use this metaphor where it talks about the letter versus the spirit. This is not a condemnation of the letter of the law. First of all, because the letter of the law was exactly what God expected the, the Jews to obey. Third, secondly, first, they expected them to, them to obey the letter of the law. Secondly, he, Paul states in this passage in verse 12 that the law is holy, the commandment is holy and just and good. So that means the letter of the law has got to be holy and just and good. So nothing that is said in this metaphor about the spirit versus the letter implies that the letter is bad. But yet that's how a lot of people want to take it. They want to interpret that phrase, the spirit is grace and the letter is legalism. But that's not what Paul's not talking about legalism in Romans uh, 7, 1 through 7. Legalism is not in the context. What's in the context is there's a change. We're not under the Mosaic law. Being under the Mosaic law was not legalism. The Pharisees were legalistic, but that's because the Pharisees were misusing and misapplying the Mosaic law. That's why Jesus taught the Sermon on the Mount. He All through the Sermon on the Mount, he uses this, this pedagogical technique where he says, you have heard it said that such and so. And what, he's telling, what he means by that is this is what the Pharisees have told you the Torah teaches. But I say to you, what he's doing is he's giving God's interpretation of the Torah in contrast to the Pharisees' legalistic interpretation of the Torah. But they're both interpreting the law. The law is from God. The law is good. And obeying the law is not legalism. Obeying the law, thinking that obedience to the law is your means of salvation or your means of gaining God's blessing or getting God's approval that's legalism. It's excluding grace. So that's that's an important concept to to grasp because it is not clearly understood. And I think in the 30-plus years I've been teaching the Scriptures and in pastoral ministry, that's something that uh, I, I have had to deal with. And with every group, every congregation, people get that notion in their head that legalism is... Thou shalt do something. Well, there's all kinds of you shall do this, pray without ceasing, uh, giving, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. Those are thou shalts all through the New Testament. There's hundreds, seven or eight hundred imperative mood verbs in the New Testament, plus many other ways that you can express a command 
uh, other than just imperative mood verbs, and I'm, I'm not excluding the Gospels in that number. That's in, in the epistles and uh, uh, just in the epistles between Romans and, and Jude. So we see this contrast between being under law and under grace. Under law was the relating to the spiritual life under the dispensation of the Mosaic law from Sinai to Pentecost. And it, the terminology here, and I'm probably going, I've done some, looked through some other passages later and I came up with three or four other descriptions to put in here. But <clears throat> what we find is this contrast between, in the phraseology, under law, meaning that the Mosaic law dictated through ritual and through moral mandate how a person was to live. But the law didn't enable the person to fulfill the commands. In the church age, we still have commands, but we're under grace, but we're given the Holy Spirit who enables us to fulfill the commands. That's part of the difference. Under the law, we were still slaves to the sin nature. In the church age, we're free from the bondage, the tyranny of the sin nature. Not free from the sin nature, still there, but free from the bondage or the tyranny of the sin nature. Under law, uh, the emphasis was still, everything was still pretty much functioning out of the flesh, out of the sin nature. Now, that raises questions for us because we think, okay, if everything comes from the sin nature, how do they have things like divine good? Well, you always had that problem, you just didn't know it. Because when we get into the New Testament and we say, the only way you can produce divine good is by walking by the Spirit. You just excluded that from a possibility in the Old Testament because if divine good, which is rewardable in heaven at the judgment seat of Christ, oh, that's right, Old Testament saints don't show up at the judgment seat of Christ, do they? No, because they don't get resurrected till the end of the tribulation. They have a different basis for accountability. So... The issue of divine good versus human good is a church age issue. I just love it when I get everybody thinking like this. But if we're going to be true to our dispensational assumptions, not because of dispensationalism, but as Dr. Walbert used to say to me, because that's what the Bible says, Mr. Dean, then we have to be consistent. And that means that the basis for the spiritual life we have in the church age and everything related to it, which is walking by the Spirit versus walking according to the flesh, walking by the Spirit so you produce divine good, that which is rewardable as gold, silver, and precious stones, none of that relates to an Old Testament believer. They didn't have that. They had a different dynamic. They were to obey God. God's teaching different principles through that. He's, God's teaching that you really can't do it on your own, and I'm not helping you. When I don't help you, you, you really can't do it. That's why you just have this negative trajectory all the time in the Old Testament, is they cannot pull themselves up by their own bootstraps. The purpose for the law was what? Not to show them how they can live and be blessed by God, even though that's the theoretical uh, reality there, because they can't, and they never do, and they never are. It's, it's As we'll see in these passages, the purpose for the law was to condemn them, to re- show that they were un- condemned under death. They were 
in bondage to that sin nature, and they just couldn't do it. The law wasn't given to show them that they how to enable them to to uh, uh, live for God, but to show them you really just can't do it. You can measure, you can you can do some things, but mostly you can't. So <clears throat> you're either walking, you're, you're always in the flesh, the sin nature, but now under grace you're led by the Spirit. That's we'll see that in Galatians five, and I'm sort I'm front loading this now. So when we get into the passage in Galatians five and Second Corinthians three, you're going to capture this, and you're going to see this right away. That this contrast is that we're we're no longer under the law, but we're under grace. If you are led by the Spirit, Paul says in Galatians five, you're no longer under law. Well, they're not led by the Spirit at all in the Old Testament, and they are under law. So they they couldn't they, they it was a completely different dynamic. It's like trying to for us to under, go back and understand that it's, it's it's like trying to understand what it was like in the Garden of Eden before there was sin. We've got no frame of reference for it, so we can't do it. We can we can get a general idea, but uh, not a specific idea. The result of living under the flesh is hostility and divisiveness that just summarizes the works of the flesh, Galatians 5.20. Uh, and then love summarizes the fruit of the Spirit. I pointed out Sunday morning, in case you weren't here and missed it, that, <clears throat> and we'll, look at, we'll see this again, it's interesting, the, in, in, when it describes the works of the flesh in Galatians 5.20 and 21, the t- word for works is plural, for the works of the flesh are, and then you have a list of the works of the flesh. But then it says the fruit of the Spirit, a singular noun, not the fruits of the Spirit, but the fruit of the Spirit is love. Love becomes the topic in this section in Galatians 5 back in 5.13. And so the other characteristics that are listed there are not other fruits. They are all related to love in some way, some fashion. They are different facets of love. So we have the deeds of the flesh versus the fruit of the Spirit. The law is engraved on stones, written on stones, and I'm not going to ask for a show of hands, but mine would go up. That is often depicted as something negative. It's not written on the, it wasn't written on stones, it's written, now you're, it's written on the heart. Oh, amen, aren't we good? But, but see, in the Old Testament, they honored the fact that, and, and the Jews honored the fact that the law was written on stone because it was permanent. It, that, that brought glory to God. That was a good thing. Paul is not saying that's a bad thing. Paul is saying that is characteristic of the spiritual life that was temporary, that didn't get you life, that didn't, didn't save you, but that was, the, that was characteristic of the law in the Old Testament. But we're not under the law anymore. We're under grace. And it's a different dynamic because the law is written on the heart. It's embodied in the life of people. It's a different dynamic. He's not contrasting one as bad and the other as good. He's contrasting one as characteristic of the old dispensation that doesn't continue anymore and the other that's characteristic of the new dispensation. I know, we've got to think this through a little bit. It's really uh, fascinating. The Old Testament, the law was a ministry of death. But the law was good and holy and just. Don't forget that verse. I got in a discussion with somebody one time, and they said, well, you know, the Mosaic law was, was terrible. 
That's not what the Word of God says. The Pharisees distorted it and made it terrible, but it wasn't terrible. It was holy and just. It had a purpose in the overall progressive revelation of God. Under grace, we have life. So that's what we're going to look at here. I think this is great to study this because it really opens things up and helps us to see things a little clearly. Not that we're seeing things that we haven't seen before. It's just we're going to connect the dots a little more uh, consistently. So last time I took us through Galatians uh, 3. I want to go back there to touch on that as we, as we begin and continue our progression through these passages in the, in the Old Testament. Galatians was Paul's first epistle, and, and he lays out in and, and sort of a uh, uh, seed form a lot of the main key doctrines that are in Romans. And the, so the books often help these two different epistles help illuminate one another. If you look at Galatians 3, I don't have any more slides, so you're, not go- you're going to have to just go back to re- trying to remember where all those books of the Bible are instead of just looking at the screen. Galatians 3.21, Paul says, Is the law then against the promises of God? Of course not. The way he forms the question, the answer would be no. It's not against the promises of God. For if there had been a law given that could have given life, see, that's the the uh, uh, protestants there, truly righteousness would have been by the law. What he's saying, as I pointed out at the end last time, if it was at all possible that people could get life by obeying commandments, they could have done it by the law. That's the, that means it's the highest and best. You, can't, you can't, couldn't improve upon it in any way, shape, or form to have g- given somebody a law code that would have gotten them life. It was the best there could possibly be. If there had been a law given which could have given life, if that were possible, truly righteousness would have been by the law. But the Scripture has confined under judgment all sin that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. But before faith came, we were kept under guard. We were confined by the law. Was that bad? No. See, we have a tendency to think that was bad, but there was a purpose for the law. It was holy and just and good, and it was designed to be a teacher. It was a divine teaching mechanism in the flow of progressive revelation, the flow of history. He uses the analogy of the tutor, the pedagogue, in a Roman household, that the pedagogue was a slave who had a dictatorial type of authority over a child until the child reached the age of manhood, at which point he didn't have any authority over the child anymore. The analogy is to the law. The law had complete authority, and it was good because the law's purpose was to teach something, not teach how to be saved, but to teach that you can't do it yourself. You're not, your sufficiency comes from God, not from your own ability. Remember what I just said. You're sufficient because that's what Paul starts off with when he goes into this letter versus, uh, letter versus the Spirit in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, the first part of his argument is, my sufficiency is in Christ. 
So that's the point of the law, to teach that it's not in us, it's, it's in Christ. So now we're going to go over to uh, Galatians 5. Galatians 5.18. In Galatians 5.18, Paul says, But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. The if there in Greek is a first-class condition. That mean, that's one of three different ways that the Greeks, Greek language can express a condition. And here it has the sense, if, and we're, I'm assuming it to be true, or if, and it is true, and he's talking to them as believers, so it is true. If you are led by the Spirit, then you're not under the law. Now, since those Galatians are just like us, and they're church-age believers, they are led by the Spirit, because we are, if you're a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, according to Romans 8, you're led by the Spirit. So we're led by the Spirit, therefore we are not under, uh, not under the law. So that means that when we look, we, I just went right into the middle of that, that section to highlight the one phrase that we're studying, this idea of under the law, the contrast between spirit versus law, and what does that mean? Now I want to take you back to pick up the context a little more. As I pointed out last time in Galatians 3, uh, verse 3, Paul lays out the basic question, the basic issue that, that he's addressing in talking to the Galatians. The problem was that they had these uh, Jewish, non-Christian Jews who kept following Paul, and they would come in, they would say, oh, it's great to think that Jesus is the Messiah. It's great to think that, that uh, you're going to get to heaven by believing on Jesus, but you still have to obey the law. The law is not over with. You have to, men have to be circumcised. You have to obey the law. It's, it's still important. You can't do away with the law. So they were called Judaizers. And that idea of the law was a legalistic use of the law, that you had to apply the law in order to really be saved. It was believe in Jesus plus the law to be saved and believe in Jesus plus the law to be sanctified. So Paul's had already addressed the confusion and the distortion of the gospel in the first two chapters, saying in very harsh terms, this was not the true gospel. This was another gospel of a different kind, and therefore those who proclaim it are accursed. And now he said he's going to shift to talking about the post-salvation spiritual growth, and he says, are you so foolish, having begun by means of the Spirit... That is, you were regenerated, you were born again by means of God the Holy Spirit, having begun by the Spirit. Are you now being made perfect, uh, teleao, being brought to completion or matured by the, by the flesh or the sin nature? And I pointed out last time that three key words here, spirit, perfect, and flesh, are not used again until we get to Galatians 5.18. Everything between 3.3 and 5.18 help us to understand his answer. So sometimes if you think that I take side trips every now and then and it takes me a long time to get to the answer of something, I'm not nearly as bad as the Apostle Paul. So in Galatians 5.18, excuse me, I said 5.18, I meant 5.16. I say then walk 
by means of the Spirit, there's that use of Spirit, and you shall not fulfill, that is, you shall not make perfect or bring to completion, teleao, the lust of the flesh. There's the third word. So everything in between, now he's going to tell us how, if we, if we begin by the Spirit, we're not going to be matured by the flesh. We're going to be matured by the Spirit. We have to begin by the Spirit and continue by the Spirit. Do they have the Spirit in the Old Testament? No. So they couldn't do this. It is completely different. It, the precedent for the church age spiritual life is not in the Old Testament. It's unique. It's absolutely, totally new. Now, as he leads to this in this last chapter, as he comes out talking about the law and the uh, uh, role of the pedagogue, he talks about the, the law as a covenant, and he uses the analogy at the end of chapter 4. Uh, he draws an analogy from uh, Hagar and from Sarah, that Sarah represented grace, Hagar represented uh, law, and that law brings bondage. That's the whole point there at the end of the of the uh, chapter 4. He says, nevertheless, what does the Scripture say? Cast out the bondwoman and her son. He clearly says he's using this as an allegory. And he can do that because he's under he's writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Scripture is not to be interpreted interpreted allegorically. He does, allegory in the way we use it today denies the literal meaning of the allegory. What he means by allegory does not deny the literal historicity, uh, factuality of the original events. He's just saying they, they, I'm going to use this as an illustration to make this point by analogy that you have to get completely cast out the law to go forward. Otherwise, you're going, to get, you're going to get trapped and you're not free because under the law, you're not free, which is why he then says in verse 1 of chapter 5, Stand, therefore, in the liberty by which Christ has made us free and do not be entangled again with the yoke of bondage. So the law, which is holy, just, and good, is also a yoke of bondage. Not in, in its legalistic application, although it becomes, it is that true, uh, truly, but it is a, a, a yoke of bondage because it doesn't give you the ability to do the commands of the law. So God tells them all these things to do and not to do, but he didn't infuse in them the ability to do it, which is what he does in the New Testament. So we get into this discussion about liberty, and in verse 4 he says, you have become estranged from Christ. You believers in Galatia, you, you've become separated from Christ because you've attempted to be justified by law. You have fallen from grace. It doesn't mean they've lost their salvation. It means you've departed the, from the grace message. Verse 5, For we, through the Spirit, eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness by faith, not by law. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision avails anything, but faith working through, what's that word? Love. Love's the key word in this. Second to spirit, love's the key word that you have to trace down through this, this section. And so we're going to skip from there down to verse 13. Verse 13, he says, For you, brethren, have been called to liberty. 
Liberty doesn't mean you can do whatever you want to whenever you want to. Liberty means now you're free to serve Christ. You're free to truly love one another. He says, you've been called to liberty, only do not use liberty as an opportunity for the flesh. Don't use liberty as an opportunity to sin. That's antinomianism or licentiousness. But what, what does he say there? Through love serve one another. Now, usually when we get into this section of, of, of Galatians, nobody talks about that verse. But you have love mentioned in verse 6. You have love mentioned again here in verse 13 that through love serve one another. That's the command. He then gives an illustration of that command in verse 14 where he says, For all the law is fulfilled in one word, even in this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Now, I want you to look at that verse. Is is he quoting, is verse 14 there to tell you to love your neighbor as yourself? No. It's an illustration of his command to love, through love serve one another in verse 13. The quote that is there in verse, in verse 14 is from Leviticus 19.18. It's part of the Mosaic law. But remember when Jesus is asked, what's the greatest law? And he says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. That summarized the whole law. So all of the law related to other human beings are, are simply different uh, uh, specifics on how to love your neighbor as yourself. So he's he the the term that he's emphasizing is love serve through love serve one another. Who's the one another? Does that include your neighbor? Only if your neighbor's a Christian. See, Jesus said, "I give you a new commandment that you love one another as I have loved you." One another isn't, in context, is one another in the body of Christ. It's not talking about outside the body of Christ. It's a higher standard. The standard isn't love your neighbor as you love yourself. The standard now is love one another as Christ loves you. It's a much higher standard. It's a much higher standard, and it's restricted. Does it mean we don't love our neighbor as ourselves? No, because uh, that, those mandates are still there. But that's not what Paul's emphasizing here. But it's love again. And he, then he says, but if you bite and devour one another, which is just divisiveness and nastiness in the, in the congregation, if you bite and devour one another, beware lest you be consumed by one another. What's the solution? The solution is verse 16. I say then, walk by means of the Spirit, and you will not fulfill the lust of the flesh. So what you've been trying to do, Paul is saying, is you, since you've been trying to live the Christian life and grow up and mature as a Christian by obeying the law, Where's that led you? It's led you to internal squabbling and divisiveness and biting and devouring one another. That's because you're not, you're not trying to complete or mature by the Spirit. You, did you begin by the Spirit, and now you're trying to be completed or matured by the flesh? So he's back to that now, and he says, the solution is walk by means of the Spirit, and you shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. So we see in this... Uh, Third line down, the contrast between the flesh and the sin nature on the one hand and the spirit on the other hand. That's the contrast between under law and under grace. For the flesh, he says, that's the sin nature, lusts against the spirit. 
and the spirit against the flesh. That's that warfare that constantly goes on in the believer's life because as when we're in fellowship, we're walking by the spirit. When we're out of fellowship, we're walking by the sin nature of the flesh. They're contrary to one another. They're mutually exclusive. They're contrary to one another so that you do, do not do the... You do not do the things that you wish. Now, I'll come back to that when we get into Romans 7, because that's what Paul says. I tried to grow as a Christian using the law, and I did what I didn't want to do, and I didn't do what I did want to do. And that's the whole frustration of Romans 7, trying to do it yourself without the Spirit, is it doesn't work. We don't have the uh, capability within us to fulfill the law. And then Paul says in verse 18, but if you are led by the Spirit, you're not under the law. So we're not under the law anymore because as Christians in the church age, the law is no longer operational. It's been fulfilled in Christ. And then so that you can understand whether you're walking by the flesh or by the Spirit, he gives you Uh, some manifestations. He says, the works, plural, of the flesh are evident, which are adultery, fornication, uncleanness, lewdness, idolatry, sorcery, hatred, contentiousness, jealousies, outbursts of wrath, selfish ambitions, dissensions, heresies, envy, murders, drunkenness, revelries, and the like. So those are all different manifestations of the sin nature. And then in verse 22, he says, but the fruit singular of the spirit is love. What are we talking about in chapter chapter 5? We're talking about Liberty, love, and it can only—it's only realized by walking by the Spirit. So the, this is your next dot to connect. You know, in your Bible, you can circle love in verse six, love in verse fourteen, love in verse fifteen, and then love down here. It connects the dots. He's talking about how do you have this love that he—that he's talked about in verse six, verse thirteen, verse fourteen. It's the result of walking, uh, walking by the Spirit. So that ties it together for us in those verses and connects back to, uh, con- just to make sure we've we've got it. Let me go back and I want to read the passage. Make sure I've got it right. Romans six fourteen, in Romans six fourteen. Paul said, "For sin shall not have dominion over you." For you are not under law, but under grace. In Galatians 5 terminology, the flesh shall not have dominion over you, for you are not under law, but under grace. So we're trying to understand the dynamics of what this means, that we are under grace. It doesn't mean that we can do whatever we want to. It doesn't mean that there are no absolutes. There's no mandates. It doesn't mean there there aren't stipulations. It means that In this dispensation, God has gone above and beyond the call of duty to give giving us what what Paul talks about in Ephesians 1, 3, blessing us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenlies. It's already done. He's given us every conceivable capability and asset to to obey him and to, to walk with him. So that's Galatia, how Galatians 5 fits into this whole um, uh, sort of mosaic in terms of these, these, different, uh, these different patterns. So now what I want you to do is turn to one, our next passage, and that's in 2 Corinthians chapter 3. 
2 Corinthians chapter 3. And this is a great passage. It's one of those passages that 2 Corinthians, for one thing, is one of those books that is rarely taught. What are your five favorite books? Nobody Nobody lists 2 Corinthians. What are your ten favorite books? Nobody lists 2 Corinthians. It just seems to be overlooked, and it's overlooked in the commentary tradition as well. There are not that many uh, great commentaries on 2 Corinthians because when you ha- it's one of the last epistles that somebody writes on. You get a commentary series come out on every book of the Bible, and it's going to be the commentary series to end all commentary series. And one of the last commentaries that gets published is on 2 Corinthians. It's almost like a spiritual stepchild. But there are great things here, but I think they're hard to understand that uh, often when people read Peter saying that Paul wrote some things that are hard to understand, they're thinking about election and predestination. I think Peter had 2 Corinthians in mind. And and one of the things, one of the chapters that's very difficult for people is this particular this particular chapter. So I just I want to go through about the first uh, nine or oh, nine to eleven uh, passages, uh, verses rather, in here just to help us understand it. Now I'm going to fl- I want to do a little flyover first of all. He starts the the context here is is this ongoing correction of the Corinthians. Uh, the Corinthians were the bad boys of the early church. And they lived in a in a community in Corinth that was uh, had been a, a, a Roman colony and it was settled by a lot of retired Roman soldiers. It was a seaport, not unlike Houston. And back in the day, if you hung out down by the ship channel a lot, it, you really understood more what that meant. I think there were just so many different dives and bars and I don't know what all down there that that. It was just just nasty, but that was Corinth all over. Anything went in Corinth. In fact, it was proverbial in ancient Rome that if you were uh, driven by lust, if you were homosexual, licentious, uh, party boy, you were a Corinthian. That's what it meant. That's where that idiom came from. If you just felt like anything went, if you were basically a typical American uh, college person today who had no values and no absolutes, That's and you did whatever you wanted to do, however your sin nature dr- drives you, that's what a Corinthian was. They were not, they, they had no moral background. They had to learn all this from scratch, as it were, because they weren't even taught good establishment morality prior to being saved. So they were divisive, and the first part of 1 Corinthians, Paul's having to correct all of these different problems that are going on uh, inside the congregation. They're saved, but their, their sin natures are running away with them. After he dealt with several of those problems, there was apparently another epistle that was not uh, going to be preserved in Scripture, that is the true Second Corinthians, and then there was uh, uh, that that it was a response, and then there's this one. There was also some correspondence from Corinth. They tried to straighten some things up, but as so often happens with people who are learning and growing, they made more mistakes in trying to straighten things out. 
And one of the, the mistakes that they continued to make was this, this sort of um, uh, people worship. They, they got focused on the messenger and not the message. And I, I've heard a lot of people say, say I, I bet on one thing if somebody says, well, I, you know, I just believe it's the message and not the messenger. I'll tell you one thing. The reason they're saying that is because their focus is so much on the messenger, it's unbelievable, and they're in self-denial. Ninety percent of the people I've heard emphasize that I have their eyes on the messenger. It's, and that's what Paul's saying. It's not the messenger. Quit following Apollos and Cephas and me. And It's not about us. It's all about Christ. And quit making a big deal about this. And they continue to go after these the anybody who came along who had... A, a, a winning smile, a popular personality, and a pleasing message they would run after, sort of like Americans and their current president. They were consumed with the surface and not the content. And uh, they would have fit in very well in our television, superficial, image-focused culture that cares more about what somebody looks like than their message, as evidenced by one of the first television debates between Nixon and uh, JFK. Everybody's pretty familiar with that. Nixon didn't didn't want to put on any makeup, so he came out looking uh, like he was coming off of a three-day drunk with a heavy, dark beard, and that made him look... Uh, negative, so it, it was just an image thing. But that's what why Paul's writing. So he's got these false apostles that are coming with all of their made-up credentials, and he says in the beginning of this third chapter, do we begin again to commend ourselves? Are we puffing ourselves up? Are we the ones who are blowing our own horn? Are we the ones who are making ourselves uh, significant? Or do we need, as some others, epistles of commendation to you? Apparently they were showing up with, with made-up um, uh, resumes. Uh, he said, or letters, uh, do we need to ha- uh, come with uh, epistles of commendation to you or letters of commendation from you? And then Paul said, you, in verse 2, you are our epistle written in our hearts. He says, the evidence of, of the truth of our min- the genuineness of our ministry the authenticity of our ministry and the veracity of our message is that when you when you believed it and applied it, it changed your life. And then in verse three, he says, "Clearly, you are an epistle of Christ, ministered by us. God worked through Paul, and it was on the basis of that divine work of God through Paul and his associates." that the gospel was taught in Corinth and the church was founded. He says, you are an epistle of Christ ministered by us, written not with ink, but by the Spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of flesh. See, this is where we get into that stone versus flesh, that is, of the heart. So flesh here isn't sin nature. It's talking about uh, just the, uh, the human uh, human life. Now, skip down. So we get the overall view here to verse 9. 
one thing, verse 3, when he says, uh, uh, you're an epistle of Christ ministered by us, that's diakoneo. That's that word I said, service, ministry, that's that verb. It shows up several times going through here in either the noun or the, uh, or the verb form. And we see it again in verse 9, for if the ministry of the condemnation, what's the ministry of condemnation? That's the law. The one purpose of the law was condemnation. You didn't get life by the law. You learned that you could not live up to God's standards, and so the law was a ministry of condemnation and a ministry of death. He, he says, for even if what, uh, he said, for if the ministry of condemnation had glory, that is the law, that's the term, he develops that in between. For if the ministry of condemnation, that is the law, had glory, and it did, See, it was still good, righteous, perfect, and had glory. There was nothing wrong with the law, not even a little bit, except that it couldn't give you life. Its purpose wasn't to give life. Its purpose was to demonstrate that we were dead and couldn't get there on our own. The, uh, for if the ministry of the condemnation and glory, the ministry of righteousness exceeds much more in glory. It's not that it didn't have glory, but we have greater glory in the age of grace. For even what was made glorious had no glory in this respect because of the glory that excels. For if what is passing away was glorious, that is the law, what remains is much more glorious. Therefore, since we have such hope, now, this isn't the hope in change. This is real biblical hope, which means a certainty, a confidence of, of, of a future reality. It's a confident, certain expectation of a future reality. Now, let's, uh, let's go back and just, just look at this a little bit. He says, because uh, we, we don't have that much time left, but I want to at least get you focused on what's going on here in verse 3. Paul gives four characteristics of this epistle in verse 3. First of all, he says, it is a letter from Christ. You are an epistle of Christ. An, e an epistle is not the wife of an apostle. It is a letter. You are an epistle of Christ. So the letter is from Christ but it is mediated through the human writers of Scripture. You are an epistle of Christ. Second, he says, ministered or served by us. In other words, God doesn't work directly. He works indirectly through the leaders of the church and through the apostles. So the, the word here is diakoneo, and it should be translated uh, being ministered by us. The New King James probably has the best translation of it. Some others try to uh, use service or some other circumlocution to let it come across in English a little better, but that's that's the, the main main focus there. The idea of ministering there implies that Paul is crucial, the ministry of the, Paul the Apostle and his associates is crucial and foundational to producing the letter. Remember, the letter is really their life. It's, it's embodied in their life and the impact the gospel has had on them. The third, uh, the third thing Paul says here, we see here about the letter is it's inscribed or it's written 
by the Spirit of the living God, written not with ink, but by the Spirit of the living God. Now let me ask you a question. This is a hard question. He's contrasting writing something with ink and writing something by the Spirit of the living God. Is there something wrong with writing with ink? No. Now, in the analogy, writing with ink is analogous to writing on stone. Neither one of those are wrong because the point wasn't this was wrong and this is right, which is how this idiom through here is often misinterpreted. The issue here is this writing in stone is past. That was right and good, but we're not in that dispensation anymore. We're in a, we're in a new dispensation. And so he, he says, written not with ink, but by the Spirit of the living God. And, of course, how did Paul write his epistles? Uh, with ink on papyrus. So you know, don't, don't, we can't say that writing with ink is wrong. It's just talking, he's just using this as analogy of the dispensational uh, shift that it's taking place, which is exactly what I've been in- emphasizing in Romans 6 and 7, is that Paul is saying we're not under law anymore, we're under grace. We're in a new dispensation, new realities, new dynamics, new empowerment, because God's taking the human race to the next level because he can now that salvation is completed on the cross. And we have a uh, uh, the authority of the sin nature is crucified. Never had happened. Never had happened before. So he, the point of this contrast is that not that writing with ink is wrong, but that the the impact now is that the that the Holy Spirit drives the doctrinal truths embedded in on the page to be embodied in our life. And there was no Holy Spirit, no. God-given dynamic in the Old Testament to enable them to apply the law. They had the standard, but God didn't give them anything to make it happen. Now, in the church age, we have the Spirit to make that happen. So he he goes from there, that point in verse 3, in the first part of verse 3, to the second point in verse 3, which is to this contrast between stone, written on stone and written on the heart, not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of flesh. He's just contrasting the Mosaic law was written on tablets of stone, and there was nothing wrong with that. But it didn't give people the inner ability to apply it. Now it's written on the heart. Now there's language that comes out of this that's related to New Covenant passages uh, in, in Ezekiel. And we'll get into that a little bit next time. But that's the main idea. Now, let's just get a little survey of the next three verses. Verse 4, he says, And we have such trust through Christ toward God, not that we are sufficient of ourselves to think of anything as being from ourselves, but our sufficiency is from God. What did I say the point of the law was? Was to show that we had no sufficiency. So, see, that's what he's coming back to here is this this concept of sufficiency that our sufficiency isn't in anything that we've done doesn't mean we don't have a responsibility to teach and explain the word and explain the gospel but we know that that everything that we do 
If it has any success, it's because God does it. We're not relying on human techniques. We're not going to go out and learn uh, the, the 25 points of the purpose-driven church so that we can build a church. We're not going to go to any of these other churches that are exploding and figure out what they're doing so we can imitate their technique. We're going to make sure that when this church grows, it's because people come. This is me, me speaking. People come because they want to know the Word of God. And a lot of people don't want to know the Word of God today. They want to have the trappings of knowing the Word of God. They want to perhaps have a pastor who seems like he knows the Word of God or uses the right verbiage, but they really don't want to know the Word of God. And I ha- and some of you as well have been around Christians and Christianity long enough to recognize that that is true, that if you think back to the kind of people who were adults in their 20s and 30s and 40s, in the 60s and 70s and 80s, they had a hunger to know the Word of God, so much so that they would, in some cases, go to church four, five, six, seven times a week to study the Word. You don't find young people today doing that. They're not willing to give up all of their nightlife and their iPads and iPods and computer games and everything else in order to come to church to learn the scripture. They think Sunday's good enough. Well, Sunday's not good enough. Once a week is never has cut it and never will cut it. You have to it has to become embedded and embodied in our hearts, in our thinking and in our souls. And that doesn't happen once a week. It doesn't even happen once a day. It has to be part of our life day in and day out. And everything else in life somehow is, is secondary. Now, I know that becomes challenging because we have to live and work and all of those other things, but we have to make the Word of God that, that primary passion in our life to live for the Lord Jesus Christ and have our life change. So Paul says that sufficiency isn't from us, it's from God, who also, verse 6, made us sufficient as ministers of the new covenant not of the letter, but of the Spirit. Now, is there something wrong with the letter? Because you've heard this for years. Uh, You've heard people talk about the letter. We're going to not follow the letter, but the law. Somehow they think that this is legalism versus grace. It's not. Paul still wrote with letters. As far as I can tell, he still wrote with letters. It's not about a style of interpretation. Often this verse is taken out of context ever since Origen in the the 3rd century, ripped out of context to justify allegorical interpretation. We're not going to follow the literal interpretation. We're going to follow the spiritual interpretation. That's not what he's talking about here. This is not a discussion of interpretation. This is a discussion of what changes a person from the inside out. Is it the letter that doesn't give you the ability, or is it what happens in the New Testament era where you have the internal indwelling of God the Holy Spirit who's the one who gives you the ability to fulfill the letter? And that's what he's saying. So we'll get into some of those details a little more next time. Uh, You're going to have to, I know this, you're going to have to hear it four or five times just as I've had to think it through and work through it several times. To, to really grasp what this is saying. It's the conclusion isn't any different from anything you've heard before. It's just that 
I'm telling you that this passage isn't saying what you've heard before. It's talking about some other things that you have heard before, and it's just going to make a lot more sense once you understand that that's what Paul's talking about. Father, thank you that we have such a great spiritual life, that we have God the Holy Spirit who indwells us, who fills us, who are to walk by the Spirit, and many times it just doesn't seem very clear to us how we are to do that. But he, as Galatians 5 points out, lays out that path. We're to follow him, and that path is the word of God. We're to follow the, the word of God, the letter of the word, but we have the empowerment of the Spirit who enables us to embody the word in our lives, not just leaving it on a piece of paper, not just leaving it on stone without the ability to internalize it and to have it change, truly change our internal nature. And so much of which is related to what we have in Christ, the, the baptism by the Holy Spirit, our identification with Christ, and the, the, the realizing that we are dead to the sin nature and dead to the law. Help us to understand these things as we continue the study in Christ's name. Amen.